Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, securing your organization from the cloud to the edge, the open source road to zero trust, federal cyber priorities for 2023. It's Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Microsoft, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The U.S. Marshals Service is responding to a major ransomware incident. The Department of Justice Bureau says the incident is affecting a standalone IT system at the agency. USMS declared the major incident on February 22nd and says the affected system contained law enforcement sensitive information. The White House is giving federal agencies 30 days to ban TikTok from all government devices. The Chinese-owned application is already banned on devices at the White House, Defense Department, and Department of Homeland Security. Congress voted in December to bar federal employees from using TikTok on government-owned devices. You can read more about these stories and more at fedscoop.com. As government workloads continue to move to the cloud, agencies are looking for security solutions from that cloud environment to the edge. My Scoop News Group colleague Wyatt Cash sat down with Microsoft Federal President Rick Wagner to explain how agencies are securing the mission in today's multi-cloud world. Even before coming to Microsoft, I had developed a strategic vision around four core technology areas. The first being cyber, then cloud, edge, and automation. So I I did this five years ago, and at that time, uh, I used the term automation because AI was still forming as a technology. Uh, I think we all recognize with recent announcements that that's that's changing rapidly. Uh, Microsoft has made an investment into OpenAI. We just released AI-powered Bing. And I think I'm seeing true AI emerging, and so I'm now changing the automation term to AI. So cyber, cloud, edge, and AI. And I see three main challenges that relate to these four areas of uh, technological advancement. And the first is the need for zero trust security across the entire IT environment. Uh, Microsoft worked over the past uh, months with the DOD to develop and and we're very supportive of the DOD's framework for zero trust architecture. And we're adopting a zero-trust architecture both internally here at Microsoft and for our customers, and that's a core priority for us. And so if you talk about zero-trust, it's based on three principles. First is uh, verify explicitly. So that's every person, every application, every piece of data. Make sure you know what's on your network. And the second is to use least privilege access. And so by that, I mean to ensure that every entity only has access to the minimum services or or data that's required. And probably the most important one is the third one, assume breach. So that's kind of the crux of zero trust. It's assuming that there are bad actors that are active on your network. And I mean, we all know that, that, that they're there and they are active. Secondly is the need for reliable connectivity between the edge and the cloud. And so this need to operate at the edge is becoming more and more crucial across the government. And that's the same whether we're talking about forward deployed DOD operations, uh, intelligence operations in, in denied areas, or citizen services where the primary device is becoming a 5G connected cell phone. It's all about operating at the edge. 
And so at Microsoft, we, we engineer our cloud to operate anywhere. We have a full portfolio of rugged edge devices to bring cloud intelligence and ubiquitous compute anywhere it's needed. We've got Azure Stack Hub, Edge, modular data centers. And so with all of these tools, the, the, the national security agencies can continue to access their critical capabilities even when they're disconnected or maybe even in, intermittently available. And to that end, we recently partnered with Lockheed Martin. Uh, we, we put an agreement in place to work on the secure 5G connectivity with them. They call it 5G.mil. And that integrates 5G technologies into all military communication networks. It provides resilience, security, and we're using Azure Private 5G Core to work with them to bring about high performance and a small footprint, because that's what it's about at the edge. You've got to have low power, small footprint. Uh, you've got to be secure and scalable to bring that interconnectivity that's needed. And then lastly, I see a need for greater data governance for real-time interoperability. And if you think about it, data is at the core of all government modernization. You need data to improve existing apps, to build better products, and to deliver improved citizen services and mission outcomes. And I think the agencies, they have to focus on three outcomes in this transformation and governance. One is unification, the second is democratization, and the third is value creation. And when I talk about unification, I mean bringing all the data together in a single source. And that's important because you don't want siloed data in different systems because that leads to siloed outcomes. Democratization talks to the ability to for uh, the average end user to use the information, not just the specialists in data, but allowing those end users to become citizen developers because they're closest to the mission, they understand what's needed, and they can use low-code, no-code solutions like my, Microsoft Power Apps, and it brings about uh, better speed of creation for data value. And, and that's the last piece, that data value. We have to ensure that the data becomes information or intelligence because that's what creates the insights that drive mission or citizen value. And so the bottom line is secure cloud available at the edge, providing value to the mission. Well, I think everyone would, uh, has really been following along with the exciting development of uh, AI and chat GPT and now in concert with uh, Bing and Edge and what that means for Microsoft. But I appreciate you're also talking about the importance of things not as publicly seen like your work when developing um, cloud computing capabilities to the edge and why that is so important. Which leads me to my next question. We've been watching agencies evolve towards um, a multi-cloud environment. Uh, and I'm curious, what are you seeing that's driving the uh, more recent urgency to adapt and leverage multi-cloud environments? Well, first and foremost, it's the need for innovation. So I love the Microsoft cloud, and I might be a little bit biased when I say that it's the best cloud on the planet. It's got amazing capabilities, but no single cloud provides everything that the federal customers need to get full mission value. I think it's through multi and hybrid cloud that the federal customers can leverage the full in innovation across the industry. And then secondly, it's the explosion of data. Uh, as federal customers are expanding their mission, uh, expanding services, there's a greater and greater demand for data. And I spoke earlier about the need for enhanced data governance. This explosion of data is creating the need for increased capacity. And, and that capacity is not available in a single cloud. And so that's driving us towards a multi-cloud use case. 
And then third is the need to harness artificial intelligence, machine learning to analyze and manage and make more intelligent use of the data. Although Microsoft has made a clear move to harness that power of AI and ML, no one provider will have all the data in one cloud. And so to make the most use out of AI and ML, we, we need to create more mission value uh, through multi-cloud and in, in special cases, hybrid cloud. This will allow mission owners to derive greater mission value from the rapidly advancing AI ML capabilities. Well, as a cloud provider operating worldwide, I'd also be interested to hear from you about the lessons that Microsoft has learned about overcoming some of the challenges of securely moving data back and forth from the edge to the cloud, especially in offline and austere situations. Yes, I would first start with making data secure in the first place. Uh, Cybersecurity is a core for the Microsoft Cloud. And we've been on the front lines of security for a long time, and that's why security is, is a core priority for us. Uh, protecting the nation from rapidly evolving cyber threats is, is our critical and number one priority. And there, there are three foundational aspects to the security at Microsoft. One is secure by design foundations. So we start with security in mind when we build anything. Uh, we secure by design, we, we provide defense in depth in, in our approach because we want to continue to be the most trusted cloud provider for our customers. And we want to deliver the foundational security product features that the customers need that will address the evolving threat landscape. Uh, second, and, and I've spoke to the, spoken to this already, is zero trust architecture. Adopting that is a core priority for us. And I, the third would be comprehensive end-to-end -end protection. And we, we deliver end-to-end -end comprehensive protection across our clouds, our platforms, uh, we work with our third-party vendors on their apps as well, and we treat cybersecurity as an interdependent whole to protect our customers across their digital estate and to simplify the complexities that they face. You also need a global view of the threat landscape. Microsoft has two amazing teams who monitor and react to cyber threats. They're called Mystic and Dart. Uh, with these two teams, we continuously monitor the global th threat landscape. And Microsoft brings together just a massive signal depth. We, we, we see 43 trillion signals synthesized daily, and we use sophisticated data analytics and AI algorithms to synthesize those, those signals. And we have a global team of 8,500 security experts who work on, the, on those processes. And we know that security must protect everything across our, our, our network, our clouds, our apps, our platforms. And so that priority is, is a key tenant for us. Well, and then I think I'd also like to hear your thoughts on the fact that, you know, Microsoft, uh, you know, clearly uh, is a huge global cloud operator. But as you mentioned, federal agencies also, you know, rely on other operators as well. Talk to us a little about what steps Microsoft is taking to help federal agencies move data back and forth between multiple cloud service providers. And um, why is that important? Well, first, we've developed a set of multi-cloud management tools that are layered above our cloud. And it's called Azure Arc. And that helps us to manage multi-cloud environments. Um, Azure Arc also manages hybrid and in addition to the multi-cloud platforms. And that gives us a, a seamless view that extends 
beyond the capabilities of our Azure cloud to on-prem data centers, edge locations, anyone else's cloud. Um, so customers who make the investment in Azure can know that they can centrally manage and govern infrastructure running in these diverse environments. I think secondly is the idea that we're committed to our customers. That means we're committed to support all of their platforms. That's why Microsoft long ago made a decision to support open source software, to embrace partners and its solutions. This way we can bring the full value of the entire technology ecosystem to bear on the mission. And then lastly, Rick, what recommendations would you offer federal agencies on how to more quickly uh, establish a secure multi-cloud operating environment? So for me, number one is acquisition reform. We need to move more quickly than ever to combat the threats that we see and to meet the increasing demand for citizen services through multi-cloud. And we need to have innovative acquisition processes to provide that innovative technology to meet those missions. And then secondly would be certification and accreditation reciprocity. There's been great strides in automating and improving the speed of certification and accreditation, but still in some cases that process can take 12 to 18 months to get full approvals across all customers and all mission environments. And so we're committed to working with our government customers to accelerate this process because we want to bring the full capability of multi-cloud to the mission. Well, it certainly sounds like this is a, a very exciting time uh, for all federal agencies to really leverage what they're doing for their missions because of the work of uh, what Microsoft is doing. And really appreciate your taking the time, Rick, to talk about the, the different dimensions of that and how you're continuing to support the market. So thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks. It was great to be here. You can learn more about the federal multi-cloud environment at thedailyscooppodcast.com. IT Mod Talks is just a few weeks away. You'll learn more about the ongoing efforts in federal IT modernization, the continued move to modern cloud-based systems, and what's in store with emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. It's all happening March 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City from 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can find more information and register now at fedscoop.com attend. A new White House cybersecurity strategy is on the way. That's according to Deputy National Cyber Director for Technology and Ecosystem Security, Camille Stewart-Gloster. At last week's Zero Trust Summit, Stewart-Gloster joined my Scoop News Group colleague, Tanya Riley, to preview the strategy and explain the role her office plays in shaping it. The fun thing about the Office of the National Cyber Director is we are supporting our colleagues in um, implementation and organizing around the problems of today. We're all so focused on stopping the bleeding, but we also get to look ahead and see what's on the horizon and think about what investments we can make today to help us be ready for the challenges of tomorrow. And as we think about implementing new technologies and as we think about the evolution of the internet and our digital ecosystem, what are the investments that we need to make now so that we are ready? And what lessons can we learn from the things that we are doing today? So all of this zero trust work, you'll hear from my colleague, Chris DeRussia later today, he is leading the federal implementation of zero trust and driving that executive order. And my team is getting to think about, okay, well, what does that mean in the context of future proofing and thinking about what's next? 
And so zero trust across the office takes on kind of a dual-headed meeting, right? One, the traditional um, investments in changing the infrastructure and moving beyond perimeter-based security, but also how are we evolving and thinking about building these things into the next iteration. Mm -hmm. And I know one of those investments that you're working on is open source software security, which is honestly something I think we don't talk enough about at these events. I agree. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing in that, uh, on that issue? Yeah, when the executive order came out, we recognized that we also needed to make some investments at even the most basic levels what are we doing with our code? What are the open source elements of the software that we are using in our infrastructure? And as many of you know, there is an open source software security movement right now where investments are being made across that ecosystem to drive developers towards security by design. And we recognize that we needed to play a part in that. This has to be driven by that ecosystem because Developers in the open source environment um, act very differently, right? They're, the code that they build is for the public good and um, isn't necessarily commissioned by an organization. And so it becomes piece and part of a number of different programs. And so as we thought about this, we said, they have to drive it. But what is the federal role in that? Also, how do we get our house in order? Um, so then director Chris Inglis tasked us to think about what is the work that's going on across the federal ecosystem on that, things like SBOMs, which I'm sure you guys have all heard of, software bill of materials, but also where should we continue to invest? And things like uh, funding and supporting the work and helping to demystify the incentive structures to get developers to think about security by design were things that came up. But the biggest was memory and safety, and how do we drive towards um, an evolution to memory-safe languages? So many code bases are built in memory-unsafe languages. And if large code bases migrated from memory-unsafe languages to memory-safe languages, that could uh, reduce security vulnerabilities by up to 70% in those programs. That's huge. So it is a huge opportunity for us to scale investment. And so through collaboration across the interagency and with Congress, it's been prioritized in uh, the omnibus appropriations bill, and we're making heavy investments on that. So that's a, a huge priority for us. Mm -hmm. And so I know you said part of your role is figuring out, you know, what can the White House do to help the private sector uh, improve in some of these areas? So when it comes to something like memory safety, you know, what what is the White House's role in kind of like facilitating improvement in the private sector, or working with the private sector to push that forward? Yeah, I mean, it starts with convening conversations, understanding where memory unsafe languages are. There's a recognition, obviously, that a lot of legacy software is going to have memory unsafe languages in it. So the approach can't be to say, you know, tomorrow migrate everything to memory safe languages, but how do we think about that evolution? How do we ensure that we're investing in education and training programs um, that prioritize memory safe languages? How are we supporting big organizations as they migrate? So we're doing a lot of convening conversations, making sure folks are aware of just how important this is. I mean, if you think about uh, memory safety as if you have a program that has a list, you've got a set data set, a list of 10, 
and you write a program calling for the 11th. In a memory unsafe language, unless you've programmed it such that it will return an error code, that's not gonna happen by default. So it will read data you're not supposed to read, it could write data it's not supposed to write, it could see deleted information, and that opens us up to a lot of complications. So how do we evangelize the problem, evangelize the solution, fund um, investments in remediating that, support the developer community in adopting secure by design practices, and then the education piece. Mm -hmm. um, I'm guessing there might be a few members of our audience now that are like, oh gosh, I hope that's not my product. Um, are there resources that uh, private companies, federal contractors can turn to right now if this is something they you know, wanna be addressing with their software? Yes, I mean, definitely connect with us. Um, uh, Atlantic Council has put out some good information about open source and about memory unsafety. Uh, there are more resources coming. We're doing a lot of work in this area. I mean, you can program around this, right? But the investment to do that is so heavy. So as you think about how you invest in your infrastructure, it should be balancing those things. How do I make sure we're future-proofing by moving away from unsafe languages? And then also, how do I think about making sure that the code that I do have is resilient? Mm -hmm. um, so I asked you about this the last time we were on stage together, and I would be remiss not to ask you again. So one of the, the founding tasks of your agency was to develop this national cyber strategy, and we've all been waiting with a lot of anticipation for it. I know maybe some people in this room have seen it. A lot of people, people in town have seen it. What can you tell us about what to expect from that strategy? Yeah, I mean, we are nearing the finish line. It is rooted in two principles, shifting the burden back from the small players, individuals, small organizations to the larger players that can bear that burden. So cybersecurity companies, large cloud providers, the folks that can build in security by design. So how do we shift that burden, recognizing that there'll be, there'll be some residual risk? Um, and also, how do we re-architect our digital ecosystem such that we are creating future resilience, much like the work that we're doing, and, and thinking about not just the short-term investments, which tend to be prioritized, but also those long-term investments that'll get us towards a digital ecosystem that's secure, resilient, and equitable. Uh, so any, any sense of when we're gonna see it? Soon. Soon. <laughs> My favorite uh, answer. Um, one other thing that you've been working on is workforce development, and obviously that's an important issue when we're talking about zero trust and bringing in people with that expertise and new perspectives. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work there? I know there was a request for information in October. What, what kind of comments are you seeing from the private sector? What, what's next for that task? Yeah. Um, we got 147 RFI responses, which is amazing because they span from individuals who had experience and expertise who wanted to submit their feedback, all the way to um, consortiums of organizations and individuals who wanted to share collective feedback because they'd seen trends. And so in that 147 responses are represented far more than that. Um, the responses have been extremely helpful and we're now starting to put pen to paper. We've convened 
a coordination group of interagency partners to help us draft the strategy. We're all thinking about what can we address across federal workforce, national workforce, um, awareness, and the education and training ecosystem. Think of it as a flywheel. How does it support one to the other? If we are going to strengthen our workforce, make sure that it is multidisciplinary and diverse, how do we have the education and training ecosystem that helps folks be prepared to address today's challenges and tomorrow's challenges, and how do we raise the collective level of awareness so that there are less barriers to access, but also that residual risk that I talked about from the national cyber strategy, we as individuals will inevitably, inevitably bear some of that burden. So how do we make sure that folks feel equipped and understand what the risks are in their technology use such that they're empowered to be a part of the solution? Mm -hmm. I know you already have a lot on your plate, a, a wide portfolio. Is there anything else coming up that we should keep an eye out for or anything that your agency wants to tackle in, I guess, year two of your existence? I mean, lots of great work going on across the organization. Um, one thing that's coming up that we are moving full steam ahead on is space and cybersecurity. Um, and so we're doing a lot of work to think about how do you implement SPD-5, Space Policy Directive 5 that came out in the last administration and making sure that space infrastructure is secure. You can learn more about the National Cyber Strategy at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The federal government is continuing to focus on cyber collaboration between government agencies. Sharing systems data and log management is key to that relationship. Also speaking at the Zero Trust Summit was Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris DeRussia. In this highlight from his closing keynote, DeRussia details how his team helps coordinate this collaboration. For those of you who know what my job is as the Federal Chief Information Security Officer and Deputy National Cyber Director, it's really about lifting all of these ships up. We're worried about hundreds of agencies. So everything we're going to do is talking about trying to move the tide. Um, how did we do that? We walked in and we said, hey, everyone's got a lot of feelings about this zero trust words. We've heard some of that today. We decided to lean into it. The one thing that we took away from it was, yeah, sure, there's some confusion here. But you know what? There's a lot of opportunity. So let's define it and let's get moving to close it in and say these are the action-oriented steps that we should be taking to build off of these principles, which all of us know have been around for a while, and this is just the best organizing construct we've got right now to move the ball forward. That's how we looked at it. And I think that a lot of others looked at it that way too. You see uh, now beyond M2209, the Federal Zero Trust Strategy, there's a DOD put out a very comprehensive uh, strategy. You look in the intelligence community, less talked about in the public, but they're also moving in the same exact direction. And we're all doing it off of a common capability maturity framework because what we're seeing for the organizations we've worked with and folks like in certain IC communities who've been doing this for longer, when you get to higher states of maturity across and you've really got to focus on all capability areas, you cannot leave one behind. The, the, the dramatic reduction of successful incidents is there. Like, there's data, okay? And, and we just, we feel that, we know that, and so what we wanted to do was just set everybody on this common course. Um, we took a practical approach to M2209, three-year plan. Sunsets right about the time of uh, next administration starting, whether it's the current administration continuing or another, but it's a nice break point in January of 2025 to say we've done basically a three-year plan 
and then now it's time for the next iteration. And that's what we're focused on right now is learning all these lessons um, from each other. This is, this is a pure public-private partnership and, and building that next strategy together again. Because by the way, we wrote that first strategy as a public-private partnership. We put it out for public comment and we, and we took all of that feedback in. And I, and I just want you all to know and feel like we wrote that thing together. So if you don't like it, you know, you can, you can look yourselves as well. But I mean, I, I joke a little bit, but I'm also serious in that we need to keep doing that, right? Like the government's got a lot of great resources, um, but we should be leveraging all of the brains and all of the experience, and we want to keep doing that. So a few concrete things, right? Um, we all know kind of why we're interested in, in moving forward with the like zero trust. And I talked a little bit about how our enduring goal is just getting cultural change, uh, technology change and doctrinal change moving all in a significant uh, movement forward. But, you know, what are some of the things that we've seen? So I'm sure you're wondering, you know, we've got a pretty good purview in my office. So, so where are we seeing progress? First thing that I'm really excited about is seeing program management offices, zero trust PMOs popping up. Why does it matter? I mean, you all know why it matters, because it's how you organize the work, particularly in big federated agencies or environments where you just have an independent way of doing things traditionally. This is an opportunity to, to organize around a construct, around a strategy, some specific targets, and if you do that with a PMO, you can get that centralized um, progress faster, and you get a lot of capabilities, and, and, and like you can put out contracts for staff AUG and get some of the best of industry that you all are offering and bring in that technical support expertise, but you're kind of running it generally with, with feds and it's a nice combination. So we're excited about that because it's gonna bring more of a centralized approach. A second thing that we're seeing a lot of progress in is logging. And I know, I hear a lot, like this is just really expensive, Chris. M22, sorry, M2131 is, you know, it's, it's expensive to do it. And it's true, and we'll probably make some adjustments down the road as we learn around where we can have the most efficient logging. But we need this, folks, like we need it. Okay, because we can't know what's happening in these networks. We can't know how the bad guys moved around and we can't know that they're gone until we have the logging data. And there's gaps, we've got to fill them. And so I'm excited, I know it's, it's a hard one, but you know what else it's doing? It's helping us with the centralization. It's moving the ball forward because it's forcing around a specific thing, a specific project, to get all of the different federated components to be working together towards that common goal of getting that data in one place so that we can protect ourselves better and work with our partners at FBI and CISA and others. I was just down at this fantastic CISO summit that we were having with the CISOs, FBI and CISA today. Us talking, us collaborating, this is what we're doing. This is the ecosystem working. Um, the next thing, you know, broad adoption of uh, multi-factor authentication, right? But most important, we gotta have phishing resistant MFA. We made some policy changes around opening up FIDO2. I think that's really important. Uh, for years and years and years, we were saying PIV, PIV, PIV all the time, and people in a lot of cases were saying PIV doesn't work over here. So that's okay. We have great technology now. It's phishing resistant. Let's use it. Um, we'll talk in a minute around uh, a community practice, community action that we set up around the FIDO2 implementation that we're excited about. We're seeing progress in vulnerability disclosure programs. That's really important. We need to have a door and that you all know to use in an agency to say you have a problem, and then inside there needs to be a process for solving that problem. I stood up a massive coordinated disclosure program at a major auto company. It's a challenge when you're doing that in a big global environment. 
there's a lot of process and things you need in place, but you know what you want in 2023? You want to be able to effectively manage a, a disclosure from a researcher quick. And, and it's something that we're excited that agencies are making a lot of progress on. Deployment of uh, end, endpoint detection, uh, EDR, XDR, pick your acronym. Uh, it, it, it's great because also remember, it's not just protecting the agency, we're giving signal, we're giving information to CISA, who if you think about, they have lots of roles, but one of them is sort of the government MSSP. Why does that matter? A lot of you are MSSPs. You're doing a great job supporting your individual agency. Thank you for that. What we haven't asked you to do, what's not appropriate for you to do, is to protect the entire federal government with that information. You know who it is? CISA. And what we're getting with the EDR, XTR deployments and rollouts is we're starting to get more and more actual data signal. We can move faster to detect here, protect there, protect everywhere. That's where we're headed. We're making progress. It's exciting. Um, deployment of SASE tools. I know that's a big uh, portion of a lot of folks here. And we're just seeing a ton of agencies go in that direction. And I, I'm excited to see what we learn from that, where there's challenges, and learn together as we get those deployments out. So we all know identity is the core of this thing, right? I don't think anyone really disagrees with that. Um, one of the things that we did that, that we're excited about is we set up a, we, we, we call it a COA, and that's, you know, that was Eric Mill saying, hey, that community practice is boring. We need to be more action-oriented. I think he's right. Um, and so what's really excited about that is that it's focused on identity. It's focused largely on, okay, if we're gonna say PIV and then FIDO2 over here and all these other use cases, how do we help uh, agencies go forward on that journey? So a few things that we're seeing, right? Like we're seeing agencies being willing to deploy pilots in production and to move fast because there are, we've put together in this COA technical experts who've been on these journeys at big massive corporations. We have some of the best minds in this country um, are, are, are a part of that COA. And they're there. And so it gives confidence. It gives confidence to folks to like move out in a direction which like could cause some disruption in their environments, but they know that there's a safety valve. There's somebody who's gonna who's been through that, knows what to do, they can ask him before, they can call them wow. I think that's really important. I don't think you can undersell uh, that, that trust and confidence piece of making new changes in this zero trust journey. This is just one place where that's, that's important. Two, it's encouraging an open and transparent dialogue across, which is really exciting to see. Um, we're also learning about technology updates faster because we have this group of people who's sitting inside the fast-moving tech world, well, people like me are sitting in the EEOB, largely in Zoom calls, maybe running down the hall, and not learning about the, the fast-moving tech every day. So we've brought in the people who are, and we're really kind of making sure that, that the agencies have access to that. And, you know, I think the last one is uh, some agencies are more resourced, have been doing this for longer, and are, are moving faster in pilots and deployments. And the great thing is with the COA model, they're sharing it back. They're sharing it back. Now, look. I think all of us have tried COPS and COAs or whatever you want to call them at one point in time. And it is also, it's a true statement to say that like, they have their moments sometimes and they have to be sustained with people who really want them to be successful. And that's true. But right now the good news is, is there's a lot of folks who are kind of putting the energy into it. What we're trying to figure out is how many of these things is the right balance to have, like maybe two or three to start. We don't want to set up 10 COAs for different pieces of zero trust implementation and pretend like we've got the energy and capacity to sustain that many of these. But a, a small handful around the biggest, most important pieces of zero trust implementation is making a huge, huge impact. So if you're a, a federal agency person who's like, what is Chris talking about? Uh, you can reach out to me, you can reach out to my team, 
we'll, we'll get you plugged into this, okay? Um, look, you know, the last thing that I want to close with on what's really exciting about this from a high-level perspective, again, you've heard a lot of great stuff today, but this is our, our lens. This is really helping us uh, align to resources. It's helping me have a cogent conversation with the resource management officer in the Office of Management Budget. That's really important. When you say, hey, cybersecurity is really important, we need to make more investments, we need more money, they rightly say, why? How do you know that investment's the right investment, and how do you know they're going to be able to implement it? What we've gotten out of our zero trust strategy is now we can do strategy-based budgeting. We have a process in place now where we can tag each agency's, at least the large agencies right now, annual zero trust allocation that we're making. We've put a number on those two words. What's below it is what matters. What's below it is the capability areas, the strategy, the implementation plans agencies provided us, data calls. We've, we've mapped our budget data calls and said your tooling buys and investments need to map to one of these categories. And then we look at that and we make sure that that's right. And so it gives us confidence and has given our, our colleagues confidence that we're actually doing strategy-based budgeting. Because people say, like, how do you know if you're getting the ROI? Well, look, that's another really good question. We're going to have to track measure progress. We're going to we do that with our performance data. But I think we can at least answer that first one, that first really good question. How do you know these are the right investments? Okay? And I'll just tell you, you know, again, that's not something that's relevant to all of you. But for those of you who are managing big, complex organizations, don't underestimate the value of being able to, like, bubble wrap this moment Back to my first word, opportunity. All right, so thank you all again for being here. This is a fantastic summit. Really appreciate you inviting me. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Thursday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.